let's get agreement that this is a strategic priority. That area of alignment and synergy can be very Looking important. The future, we're committed to expand valuation. time, there's still progress that needs to be made. This is Healthcare Strategies. Welcome to Healthcare Strategies. This is Vice President of Editorial Kyle Murphy. In today's episode, we're talking remote patient monitoring. We're the Intelligent Healthcare Media Senior Editor, Anuja Vedya of M Health Intelligence fame, and Associate Researcher Hayden Schmidt, the team's lead researcher behind Insights, our editorial research division. Welcome to you both. Hi, Kyle. Hello. I do believe this is an international broadcast, so... Hayden, where are you right now? Orlando, Florida. And that's very close to where you are, Anusha, right? Right. Same thing? Right. I'm like just a few miles off. <laughs> so all the way, all the way from India, all the way, all the way from, from the motherland. <laughs> yeah. Well, welcome to you both. So, so last year we fielded and published an insights research report called RPM Utility and Challenges. And today we're going to get in some of the details of the report and some of the nuances around remote patient monitoring. So, you know, Nuja, let's kick things off with you to set the scene. Give us a little bit, you know, the lay of the land surrounding RPM right now. Sure. So, of course, RPM is not necessarily new, but its use definitely skyrocketed in the last few years, especially during the COVID-19 pandemic, as we all know. But there is some kind of startling data. You know, recently a report shows that IPM claim volume increased by nearly 1,300% from January 2019 to November 2022. So pretty massive jump there. And of course, this is because there are so many use cases for RPM, but their utility is particularly evident in chronic disease management. So for instance, you know, some of the most common RPM devices include blood pressure cuffs for hypertension management, continuous glucose monitoring for diabetes care, pyrometers to assess pulmonary function. And in many cases, these devices are Bluetooth enabled. So it allows users to send their data directly to their providers who are, you know, at a remote location at their hospital for collection, for analysis, allowing providers to really kind of dig into that data in real time or near real time. Also, the use of these devices is often combined with video visits or audio-only visits. So providers can talk to their patients, sort of walk through any trends they're seeing, any patterns, adjust treatment plans, and then sort of explain those adjustments. So as you can imagine, when in-person care became restricted early in the pandemic, RPM, along with other types of virtual care, just really exploded. Excellent. Hayden, let's get into a little bit about the, the background of the research. So you know, to talk motivation behind the study, which I think Anuja just kind of hinted at, who was included in the survey and a little breakdown just of the respondents. Yeah, thanks, Kyle. And thanks for that introduction, Anuja. It really helps explain RPM pretty well. But for this research, like all the research we do, we sort of wanted to understand how RPM was being used in different contexts at different providers. So get like the on the ground and more uh, representative view of the way this technology was used by people in the first hand. So that was sort of the reason behind it. We wanted to get some use cases and from a, a bunch of different point of views. Additionally, we wanted to know things like how it affected providers' bottom line, how they were getting reimbursed for using RPM, what types of technology they were using the most, things like that. And then we wanted to know a little bit about the way that patients were benefiting. So those are sort of some of the topics we covered. And then the people that we talked to, it was split between individuals from hospitals, health systems, primary care practices, some specialty care practice groups, 
and a, sort of a spattering of other provider side groups, but uh, mainly those three that I mentioned at the beginning. And then we were mainly talking to or trying to talk to sort of the leaders of these practices, especially at the primary care and specialty care level, because these are the folks who are deploying technology for use across a patient group. So we wanted to get the higher level view of how successful uh, their strategies were. And we think that that group sort of has some of the deeper knowledge about how RPM is deployed at these provider settings. Excellent. What did, you, what did the, the research reveal in terms of, you know, the types of technology, these RPM technology that providers were using or kind of whatever preference they had in terms of their appetite for using it? Yeah. So in the survey, we asked specifically about the types of technology being used. So the results here aren't necessarily representative of exactly what you'd see everywhere across the nation, but it gave us a good idea of what was popular, what things we thought would be popular, but weren't stuff like that. So from the survey results, we saw that almost 60% of physicians were using a pulse oximeter. And we also saw that a, a large number of providers were using blood pressure devices uh, to measure blood pressure in their patients. Um, 53% said that they were offering their patients like weight scales, things to measure changes in BMI. There were 48% that were using heart health devices. So we're talking about like an EKG with event tracking capabilities. There were another 45% using the CGM or the continuous glucose monitors that sometimes used for patients with diabetes. And then a little more than a third told us that they were offering things like the Apple Watch or Fitbit, sort of like the wearables. And then a smaller number, 28%, said that they were offering the spirometers to measure airflow in patients, someone like who may have COPD or a condition like that. So that's, that's sort of the rundown of the technologies that people were using. It really touches on like what Anuja was saying before with chronic disease. Obviously, chronic disease, at least just talking about in the U.S. context, you're talking about what, like six and 10 people with some kind of chronic disease. But then of those people, they have multiple comorbidities. So Anuja, I'm curious from your vantage point, you know, kind of what you're hearing from providers and developers. Are they focused on that chronic disease, the burden that's, that's there in the high cost centers? And, you know, when they look to the future... Are they looking at other use cases, other things where they can, you know, really target where the technology can kind of prove its its value? Yeah, absolutely. There is a lot of excitement around RPM and exactly as you just mentioned, um, really chronic disease management is sort of the focal point for that excitement. It, there are just so many ways in which RPM can improve chronic disease management. So for instance, it can sort of help providers track patient health metrics in between doctor's visits, right? So take hypertension, you're not, doctors are no longer waiting for their patients to come in, you know, once a month or once every X number of weeks before they get that data, they can just get that data in real time. Similarly with the CGM and other devices. So that's like a huge amount of data for providers to be able to analyze, to really sort of go through trends to patterns, to see how patients are reacting to different types of medications or treatment plans, helping them really sort of improve their clinical decision-making and improve those treatment plans. And of course, we have clinical evidence that really has largely backed up RPM use, right? We've, we've seen that using RPM devices can result in fewer readmissions, in fewer unplanned and unnecessary emergency department visits, 
it can help you know cut death rates especially if used in sort of follow up care or rehabilitative care so you know cardiac rehabilitation is another huge area that providers are kind of looking to implement RPM and really sort of enhance that care delivery but looking ahead there's also sort of we can't ignore the rise of hospital at home services which again grew hugely in popularity over the pandemic largely because CMS provided a, a, a waiver which we'll get into a little bit later in this conversation but hospital at home really enables providers to bring hospital level acute care into the home which has huge potential for stakeholders clinical evidence around this is also very strong and so in the past few years we really have seen countless hospitals launch these programs and you know not only can hospital at home improve patient outcomes and clinical care but it can also help health systems in numerous other ways one of which is to sort of help them conserve much needed resources like inpatient bed capacity which we saw during the pandemic you know was a huge boon for hospitals that were able to provide that covid care in the hospital but also provide hospital level acute care at home that was huge in the public health emergency situation we have been in for you know 3 plus years now a follow up to that is you know you, you talked about you know hospital at home I'm also wondering about the kind of aging in place movement which seems to be on the rise we all have heard about this baby boomer generation wanting to be in the home not wanting to necessarily be in a assisted living community so are are you getting a sense of there too people looking down the road and thinking that well if we can put some of this stuff in place we can actually give these people peace of mind at the same time intervene when it's necessary. Yeah, absolutely. We're definitely seeing more providers, more payers talking about that. And, you know, uh, as we'll get into the reimbursement piece a little bit later, but if, if that continues, then, you know, that could definitely be a huge way to sort of keep seniors at home longer because, you know, you can sort of manage their symptoms, manage that care just so much more easily and more comfortably from their home, whether or not they have other uh, caregivers at home i think just kind of being able to have that connection to a care team is huge and with the geriatric population growing i i definitely think that increasingly you know hospitals are going to start looking at sort of the aging in place piece as well excellent hey let's bring you back in here and touch on the survey again what did we learn about provider expectations for the different rpm programs you know what was their feeling about them Maybe what are some of the areas that they were expecting more or they want to see some some further development? What did we learn in that regard? Yeah, so from the survey results and some of the qualitative interviews that we did, we saw that there were three primary goals when adopting RPM tools. These mirror what Anuja just said. The first was groups were really keen to reduce readmission to the hospital. That was primary. And for the same reason that Anuja said, that statistic sort of factors a lot into reimbursement arrangements. So if you can keep your patients out of the hospital and they don't return to the hospital, it can really help you out on the on a lot of these arrangements, these financial arrangements. The second reason that people were adopting RPM tools was to maintain a better overall record of their patient's health. These tools record tons of information and they can help a provider form a clearer picture of where a patient stands and how they're doing with some of their chronic diseases. That was foundational. And then tertiary to that, there were providers and some that we talked to who were 
using RPM systems with some of their more ill patients and the ones who may not have access to the care setting, they sort of live far away from the primary physician's office. They're using the device to sort of act as a like premature warning system. So if blood pressure has been spiking unusually for several days and your chronic care manager they had working for them, sort of this person was tracking the information that was coming in from the RPM devices and could sometimes spot anomalies um, before they got to a point of no return or a hospital readmission or something like that and just use it as a way to augment the care plan and sort of bring somebody in, say, it's really time for you to get in here to look at the medication we're giving you because something's not working or get them into some other specialist who can help with whatever the issue may be. But that was sort of the other reason that people were using these. And then also a final thing, some physicians said they were using their RPM programs to support virtual health in general at their organization. So a lot of people have picked up some type of telehealth program since the pandemic, and they may be seeing a large percentage of their patients through primarily virtual visits. And it really helps to have the ability to give them some device that can sort of just have it cover more of the bases in terms of if we can get the blood pressure, the weight, and all of these things, then it makes sense to continue to follow through with these virtual type visits. I mean, all good points. I mean, I think that's it's something that we, we've learned and witnessed over the past few years, just in terms of the pandemic making healthcare settings unavailable and technology really filling in those gaps. I want to get to the, the main issue, which Anuji, you've already alluded to a bunch of times, which is money, which is reimbursement and kind of what's holding back RPM technologies from broader use. The evidence base you said is there, enough use cases. We've seen the success with post-surgery and things like that. So I guess, you know, what's that big sticking point when it comes to reimbursement and, and who pays for what? Yeah, absolutely. So I think it really kind of comes down to the digital divide and the lack of digital literacy, because ultimately that puts a bigger onus on the health systems to provide the support that patients need to even be able to access and appropriately use these devices, which ultimately makes this whole endeavor much more expensive for the health system. So if we kind of break it down, digital divide refers to sort of unequal access to digital technology in the healthcare context. This really means, you know, how not having a computer, a smartphone, or reliable internet access can really leave patients without access to virtual care, including RPM, because as I mentioned earlier, many of these devices rely on, on Bluetooth, on Wi-Fi to be able to com collect and transmit the data. And then, you know, on the flip side, there's also the lack of digital literacy, which means that even if patients had access to these devices, they may not be very comfortable using them. They may not know how to use them. Not everybody automatically knows how to use a CGM or, you know, a, a, even a blood pressure cuff, even though these are not completely uncommon in the healthcare world. It's still maybe challenging to use or they may not know how to enter their readings into an app or any such thing. So these are really patient-facing barriers, but they are those hurdles that providers need to account for when offering these services, especially if they are, as we've seen over the years of the pandemic, that focus on health equity really grow. So to ensure equitable access to RPM, they really kind of need to 
have uh, support in place for patients. So this could look like having a technical support team. This could look like, as Hayden said, having sort of care coordinators, looking through data, noting down those trends. But all of this sort of comes down to more staffing for hospitals, uh, hospitals having to have workflows in place to make sure that the devices are being used appropriately and the data is being collected appropriately, that there is data privacy and security and all of those things. In many cases, they are trying to provide RPM services to underserved communities and underserved populations, but that means they have to figure out ways to provide those devices either for free or at lower cost. So many health systems I've spoken to end up depending on federal grants or philanthropy to be able to provide those devices to underserved communities that they are caring for. So like I said, all in all, it can be quite expensive for providers, especially those with fewer resources like federally qualified health centers. And I think ultimately this sort of really puts up a pretty major barrier for providers to adopt and offer the, these technologies that could have a really huge impact on, you know, some really key healthcare bottlenecks like chronic disease management. Hayden, let's bring you back in here in terms of some of the things you learned from the interview component of the Insights Research, which, you know, all of our reports contain the quantitative side of things from our respondents, but then we also have select interviews that we feature in our discussion section. What were some of the eye-opening things that you learned from some of these interviews? And then maybe some kind of commonalities that the different interviewees kind of shared. Yeah. One of the interviews was with a business operations director and a, a children's medical center in the uh, Cincinnati, Ohio area. And I believe it was through an academic medical center they were working through this sort of pediatric division. They were dealing with a lot of chronically ill kids, which isn't common really among pediatricians. The number one issue isn't the chronic disease for that group, right? So it was to start a unique patient population, kids who have some chronic illness, compromised immune systems. They're dealing with a lot of issues. What that business operations director and the administrative staff there learned was that it's actually not helping to bring these kids into the office all that often because we're risking transmission when they come in. Um, if there's some seasonal illness running its way through the hospital or whatever, which isn't uncommon. So they made the decision to, I don't remember the name of the device specifically, but it was essentially a device that collected all the things that you would get from you're just running a mill semi-annual visit with your doctor. So blood pressure, weight, it was like a combination of those things. But also it gave the physician who was conducting the virtual visit the ability to use a tongue depressor and get a look inside the child's throat, get a look in the ear. All these things sort of combined all into this one package. And they found that they could keep kids out of the office, especially during COVID-19, the pandemic when it was really especially dangerous for them to come in. So it was a combination of these virtual health tools, but also all-in-one remote patient monitoring device. So it's sort of this uh, nebulous thing that really, really made a difference for their business, made a difference for their patients. And then this was another person we interviewed, a primary care practice owner in rural Massachusetts area. So Kyle, you know a little bit about that. Get deep out in those woods and mountains yeah, all the time. Exactly. And you know that in the wintertime, it may be pretty difficult to travel around when you get a couple of feet of snow on the ground or whatever it may be. And the patient population working with this primary care physician, they tended to be elderly folks who really could benefit from 
getting some type of remote patient monitoring device, whether it be for their diabetes management or their hypertension, whatever it may be. And found that talking to that primary care physician practice owner, uh, the process is a pretty complicated one in the ways that all these people really would benefit from participating in both programs, but there are certainly, for better or worse, several obstacles to implementing them. So uh, especially in Western Mass, you deal with even connectivity issues, uh, transmitting the data, but then also getting reimbursed. You need the person to use it, use the device uh, certain times every month. They have to reach a, a quota on usage to get reimbursed for the device itself. And then also the functionality, you hand somebody something, they're not necessarily going to know how to use it. And then talking to this practice owner, the other big issue that she was facing was taking the data, which her systems were generating a lot of data and efficiently and effectively utilizing it. And she found that while the programs were really helpful, they also return a bit of work to you. So you have to spend more time working through that data as it's generated, all the remote patient monitoring data. So while she loved the fact that she could have the monitoring, she did say to me that there are probably going to be some business changes going forward. She would have to hire more people to help with the continuous monitoring and patient contact and trying to communicate the uh, interventions that they would be making based on the information they're gathering. So like anything else, there's trade-offs, but also overall, if you're implementing this in the right populations, and it can really make a difference in a patient's life. Certainly. And I knew there's something that you had mentioned, you know, near the top, talking about workflows, provider workflows, and obviously providers want to be able to focus on these types of things. But if the question is, is there parity in terms of reimbursement? Obviously, the public health emergency kind of allowed this widespread parity for these different services. But I'm curious about what you've heard from the provider community about some of their hesitation maybe to get more into this, considering that it could be more work if they don't have the resources to parse the data, turn it into something actionable. Right, right absolutely. And I think it has so much potential but then it just changes a lot of the ways in which hospitals are used to running. And I think any sort of changes is hard and it requires creating and developing those new workflows. I recently did an interview with Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center about some of the hurdles they faced while implementing their hospital at home program. And that was that was one of the big ones is just developing clinical workflows, getting some pushback from providers, you know, because obviously it's your hospital at home workflows aren't going to exactly mirror inpatient workflows. And when it comes to healthcare, clinicians are obviously wanting to be as careful as possible. And they have the tried and tested true things that they've been doing for so many years at the hospital. And now those workflows have to be changed to be able to be implemented in the home. And that can definitely lead to some discomfort, some pushback. So the leader that I spoke with talked a lot about how there had to be a lot of dialogue and conversation and really proving out the use case, showing them how it can work as they kind of went along with implementing things. So that's definitely a challenge. And of course, the sort of uncertainty around reimbursement is sort of always there as well. We'll round things out with the last question is, where are you guys seeing some optimism or some of the most exciting things? I'll say from my vantage point, Getting patients actually involved and knowledgeable about their healthcare can only kind of raise health literacy and hopefully start changing behaviors because prevention can go so much further than sick care. 
where are you hearing the greatest excitement around further RPM, either development in terms of devices or use cases? Absolutely. Yeah, again, I mean, it's, we've been talking about this so much in this conversation, but I really don't think it can be overstated is RPM's sort of impact on chronic disease management and maybe taking it a step further to chronic disease prevention, something that's very early on, but pretty exciting for me is that there is some exploration. It hasn't really entered any sort of clinical care yet, but on a research front, there are a couple of studies that, that providers are involved in, that NIH, I believe, is involved in as well, on how RPM could maybe be used to track Alzheimer's disease or cognitive impairment, which, you know, if that is possible, that could be huge, right? Being able to catch something as life-altering as that in its tracks is, is really amazing. Similarly, it could really sort of change the way we care for long-standing chronic diseases like cancer. There's just so much uncertainty around cancer care, and I think RPM can really help providers offer that additional layer of support at a time in a patient's life that is so uncertain, that is so sort of life-altering, because you know, I've already spoken to providers and cancer institutes that are using RPM to track symptoms for patients who are currently undergoing chemotherapy. You know, it's like obviously chemotherapy can last for weeks, months, and so on. So to be able to kind of keep track of how patients are reacting to those medications, whether they need any sort of additional support to manage side effects from any sort of cancer treatment as it's happening, instead of waiting for it to worsen to the point where they come into the ER and then they have to be admitted to the hospital, which is also just emotionally uh, very taxing on a patient to be able to catch those things and just intervene in the moment. That can really be huge to, to change the patient experience there. And of course, like we mentioned, similarly with aging in place, right? It could really just change the way our society ages, which is a very thrilling idea. I know we kind of take it for granted that there's just so much information available, but I think one of the things that we've captured in the conversation was a lot of healthcare is episodic and these little snapshots, you don't get that connective tissue between these things. And Anusha, to your point, that's where we might recognize some patterns or some early indicators of a decline or an improvement that you know may have been undiscovered because there just wasn't data in that point. Hey, I'm going to give you the final word here. Where are you seeing some of the excitement too born out of the research? And also you do some writing on our life sciences side, so I should obviously emphasize it as well. But I guess, where are you seeing some of that potential starting to come into picture a little bit for RPM? Yeah, you both made some really good points and I share those same exact feelings. Uh, I guess I'm excited to see how this data, that connective tissue you were talking about, can be sort of harnessed and used to improve outcomes in patients. So just... As the technology gets better, we track and produce better information. And then also as things, not not to sound trendy or cliche or whatever, but artificial intelligence programs and machine learning algorithms get a little bit better and we can start implementing them onto these data sets and learning better. Maybe that would sort of prompt more implementation of these devices and we can start to see some even more significant improvements in these clinical outcomes. So looking way down the road, but maybe not that far down the road, some real improvements. And that gets me excited. Awesome. Well, thank you both for your time today. I appreciate it. And thank you for our audience for tuning into this episode. To learn more about Insights Research, please visit excelligentmedia.com forward slash insights. And to read more about virtual care, connected health and RPM from Anusha and our staff, head over to mhealthintelligence.com. Thank you both. And uh, we'll talk soon. Okay. Thanks, Thanks Kyle. Kyle. For our listeners, we would love to hear from you. 
feel free to reach out with any healthcare-related questions or subjects that you think we should cover by emailing us at ksmurphy at techtarget.com. And if you like this episode, please consider rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. Take care. This is a Tech Target production.